Hey everyone, you're listening to The Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. I'm Jenny Bucola. And I'm Zoe Glomberens. And I'm Raymond Docapil. Unreliable Narrators is a podcast where we discuss media, literature, and the arts, and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. In this podcast, we will be discussing the Netflix show Stranger Things Season 1, released in 2016. We hope you enjoy our discussion. You're listening to Unreliable Narrators. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't all right, welcome to another episode of the podcast. We have a new guest here, Jenny Piccola, our friend, uh, very good friend, longtime friend. We decided to have her um, introduce the podcast to us to freak you guys out and so that you would wonder where we went. Uh, because- and probably you'll like her voice better than ours and she'll have to come back and do every single episode. <laughs> well, this Jenny is-, is now the host. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought we needed to be a little bit strange, you know, this mm. this episode because we're talking about, but we're going to talk about some stranger things than that. <laughs> stranger things have happened. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so this episode we're talking about stranger things, and yes, I've been disappointed out that whole the whole time I've ever watched Stranger Things. I was always hoping for someone to name drop the title of the show, but no one no one has yet. But we're talking about uh, season one. And the reason why we're discussing this episode is because Jenny wrote to us and we decided we were going to have her on have her on the podcast. We want to talk about it. She had a lot of interesting thoughts about Stranger Things. So uh, Jenny writes, I'm re- I'm watching Stranger Things for the first time. Just finished the first season. I know it's not on the Mars Hill list, but I know Raymond loves it. Can you guys talk about it? It has strong themes of good good versus evil, otherworldliness, and friendship, and Christmas. Eleva, Eleven strikes me as a messiah figure. It is a lot like Avatar uh, in that the powerful messiah figure is a child and her follower figures are also children. I find that intriguing and deeply incarnational. Only mortals start out as children and grow. Children are born to a mother and have recently been helpless and slobbery and gross, not shiny and perfect like a god. They are more willing to break with social norms and be honest and rude. They are often overlooked and ignored by the adult world. They are the most ordinary and simple of humans, the most human humans. When they have supernatural powers, people don't assume that they're not human, like they might with an adult who has super superpowers. Thus, they've got to be both ordinary and extraordinary humans at the same time. They can also sneak up on the world and their enemies because children are not taken seriously. This all reminds me of Augustine's faith, uh, Augustine's mousetrap, mousetrap theory of atonement, and more broad and the more broad early Christian idea of Christ's hiddenness and ordinariness as crucial to the saving power of the incarnation. All right, wow, that's a lot to unpack there. Uh, Cue the outro music. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's. Th- th- I think. Hopefully, I want to talk a lot about about the idea of children and and nostalgia in Stranger Things because I think that's a that's an, an essential part to understanding what this show is about. But before we get into that, um, Jenny, what is the mousetrap theory of atonement? I'm not familiar with that term. Yes, so it turns out I had the name wrong. It's actually fishhook theory um, of atonement. 
but it's the idea that Christ fooled the devil by being an ordinary human being or coming or seeming mm-hmm. well he was an ordinary human being but also being more than that um but because he was poor because he was a child because he was not famous until he was 30 um he the devil didn't know who he was and so he was able to kill him and think that he had trapped this man but lo and behold, he's actually God. And in Hades, um, Satan and death both recognize that this ordinary man they killed is actually God. And they have no hold on God. And so God can rise from the dead and also has the power to take everyone else with him. Um, and so it's like Christ saves us by being ordinary, by living a normal life by being hidden and fooling the devil into thinking that he could kill an innocent man, but the devil is the devil and death are turned backwards by that. They're fooled by it. Um, and so it's important right. that, all, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Right. All hope is pinned on the most unexpected person. Yes. Yes. So, so Jenny here is uh, a, a, a master student at, Notre Dame studying biblical studies and theology, I believe. Is that is yeah. that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So hopefully she'll be able to enlighten us a lot on, on that later on. Did you have more that you wanted to say? No, that was, that was about it. That was the, I was just also going to add that um, in Catholicism, especially, and also a little bit in Orthodoxy, there's, an emphasis placed on the childhood of Christ that they call the hidden life of Christ. Um, this like time period of Jesus's life that we just don't know a lot about and his being a child. And you'll often see in Catholic churches, like a statue or a picture of the Christ child. And it's this sort of emphasis on Christ's ordinariness and his, his humanity because he was a child because only humans are children. So that's where I was getting right, this right. this idea that children are important to humanness. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think I think children are really important to this show too. So that attitude is something we should address later on. So let's talk a little bit about about the show. It's actually interesting Jenny that you said I know Raymond loves stranger things which is funny that you would i don't know why you would say that because i actually am not like a huge stranger things fan but (laughs) (laughs) i don't know where that idea came from but i know that when i was debate coaching doing a debate coach i would debate about marvel movies in order to be hip and relatable so now the kids (laughs) all think that i'm a huge marvel fan so maybe that's what happened i I was trying to be hip and pretend that I like. Okay. Anyway, so you're trying to relate. I was trying to be relatable. Uh, well, I actually remember you saying one time you asked me if I had seen. It was right when it was when Stranger Things was newer, and you asked me if I'd seen it because you were really struck by how in a lot of modern movies they're turning to making the bad guys relatable. And Mm -hmm. you were like, in Stranger Things, like, evil is just evil. There's just this creepy monster who's just a creepy monster. And there's something just really, like, down-to-earth and realistic about that and honest about the world in that. And so I thought you loved it because of that. Yeah, I remember that. And I I think I do like 
like that. So, okay, let's talk about what this what this show is about. So it's set in the eighties, and it's it 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 is surrounds three three young boys. One is uh, Mike Wheeler, and then we've got Dustin and Lucas, and they're all friends, and also Will. And the story starts out with Will being taken by this horrible monster. He's drawn away, whisked away into another dimension. And it's a lot of uh, sort of E.T. vibes. We got a lot of horror vibes, some sci-fi. And there's also a young girl named Eleven who is sort of this mysterious person who has the ability to lift things with her mind. So she comes into the story as well. And we don't know much about Eleven except that she was probably experimented on as um, in, in a lab or something. And she gets thrown into the mix. And so the whole thing is a mystery story of the three boys trying to figure out what happened to Will and also trying to figure out what happened to Eleven. And so there are a lot of very archetypal characters. You know, there's our police officer and, and, and the moms and the teachers, and they all kind of get together in this sort of small town feel to solve the mystery of the of the missing boy. And so I I think I, I we do want to talk about Eleven because one of the things that's interesting about her is that she didn't have any kind of proper upbringing in terms of a, like actual linguistic education. She wasn't taught words. And so at the beginning of the show, she's actually mostly almost entirely nonverbal. And so she's kind of mysterious. We don't really know much about her. She doesn't talk very much, but we know that she can move things with her mind. And as the show progresses, she's slowly introduced to new vocabulary words. And part of that is serves to be the emotional appeal of the story because she learns about words like what's family, what is friendship, what's a promise. And so that's really interesting. And then we figure out, and then the characters, we've got the, 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 uh, the, the bad guys is, are this, these kind of monsters, which they call the Demigorgon. And then the alternate parallel universe that they've discovered is called the Upside Down. And these are all named by the children. The children come up with the names for all of these things. Um, so that kind of like sets the stage for our themes. First of all, nostalgia, I think, is a really big thing about this show. I mean, I think that's probably one of the most appealing things about it. That it's very nostalgic for the 80s. And that's why... For me, it's not like I'm super crazy about the 80s, like because I was never an 80s kid. So maybe it would be more appealing to me if I was if I had grown up during the 80s. But it's sort of an appealing looking aesthetic and there's sort of a whimsical feel to it. So I guess the first question for our discussion today is is nostalgia in general. Like what is it about nostalgia that's appealing? Well, one thing that I think is interesting I mean, I there was a period in my life where, for some reason, all I watched was 80s movies. So I've seen an obscene amount of 80s movies, probably way more 80s movies than I should have ever seen. Because I don't think they're actually, I, I don't think that was a, a great era of filmmaking. Um, and I think a lot of 80s movies are kind of dumb. But even though I don't love 80s movies, the fact that there was a period in my life where I watched a bunch of 80s movies made, especially the first episode of Stranger Things 
exciting to watch because it was like I was going back to a time in my childhood where I had watched a bunch of 80s movies. So that's not a direct response to the question, but I agree that that's a huge thing that's going on in this show is within the first like five minutes, you're like, I I have no idea what's going on here. I don't know these characters. I don't care about anybody yet. I don't care about the plot, but this feels like something cool. Um, And it appeals to, to nostalgia and... I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know why it's so appealing, I don't know why it works so well, but I think it does. What do you think, Jenny? Well, I was just gonna add that, didn't horror movies become sort of a big deal and took on, like, a special character in the 80s? There's a lot of 80s horror films, um, and I think maybe it's fun, because the technology is at a point where there's... Technology is, like, bad enough that there's still a lot of mystery in the 80s. Like, we don't have... Mm-hmm. We don't have satellite GPS, you know, quite yet. But we have, like, radar and... um, But there's enough technology that, like, the kids can talk to each other on their radios. But they don't have cell phones yet. And there's this, like... It opens up a world of sci-fi. Where there's all this potential mm-hmm. for technology, but we're not quite there yet. There's still this sort of mystery... Um, it's also for our generation, like, the time when our parents were in the prime of their life, and we see a lot of pictures and old home Mm -hmm. videos and stuff from the 80s. Yeah, VHS tapes. Yes, VHS tapes. Mm -hmm. Good music from the 80s. I love Mm -hmm. 80s music. (laughs) Synthesizers. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, and they really go to town with almost everything related to the 80s. So, so you can see it in the entire aesthetic, the music, the costumes, the writing, uh, even the writing, like the screen, like the, the way that the lines are constructed. Mm. The sort of have this kind of like the kids kind of speak in unison and there's kind of like this sort of poetic simplicity to their dialogue. And mm-hmm. they introduce every episode as chapters and the font of every episode is designed to look like the like a pulp fiction paperback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So it, it looks like it's supposed to be something that comes out of the eighties. Another thing I wanna yeah. add is that kids knew how to play in the eighties. Like they're not they're not playing video games. They're in their basement playing Dungeons and Dragons, like on a board mm-hmm. with a book and Yeah. And they get on their bikes and they bike around and look for adventure. And they've got their radios strapped to their bike handles, and they're just like they're they're in this world looking for adventure instead of like hiding in a video game or something. One of the things that I think is appealing about nostalgia, or at least utilizing nostalgia as a literary device or a way of telling a story, is it gives people an excuse to sell, to say something more simply, and I think in a more simple way or use simpler language because I think that today in the current landscape of filmmaking we have audiences have a certain level of expectation for sophistication they want things to be kind of fresh and subversive and interesting in that way with with multiple layers of irony and we have shows like you know The Office where things have to have to be sort of self-aware or self-conscious of the narrative tropes that have been existed beforehand. So 
there's kind of this infinite layer of complexity that that it is kind of fashionable now and so one of the things that nostalgia enables you to do is it gives you the license to simply say something with only one layer of irony you know so now you can just tell a straightforward story and you mm -hmm. don't have to tell it with all of these different you know layers like christopher nolan you know with so many plot twists and, and that sort of thing which can be overwhelming and i also i mean i think that appeal for nostalgia i think nostalgia has kind of become a little bit fashionable now especially when you think of like toy story 3 or something mm -hmm. like the first toy story movies were not nostalgic at all but toy story 3 was like only 20 year olds in the theater because mm -hmm. they want to go back to their childhood and then you know you got 21 pilots like uh stressed out when they're yep. talking about we i wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mom is saying us to sleep but now we're stressed out or yep. that song you know about being peter pan and that sort of thing so there's sort of this attraction to the simplicity of childhood which mm -hmm. may be somewhat of a recent trend at least in yeah in in popular media um well, but i to, think that i was just gonna say to go back to um the, so the root of nostalgia, nostos means home uh, in Greek, and then algia, as far as I understand it, I don't know, I don't remember the actual original word, and Jenny knows some Greek, so maybe she can tell me, but um, it comes from the word that means pain, so it's a mixture of home and pain, so there's this sense of a homecoming, and then that homecoming is bittersweet that that's it's good that it's a homecoming but there's also something a little painful um something that tugs in your chest a little bit about it and i think childhood feels like that which i think is probably why they made the decision to set it in the 80s and have it be sort of an 80s film and also focus on children is that it makes you think about as i w when i was a child i felt this way and maybe i played dungeons and dragons and maybe i rode around on my bike in my small town I didn't even grow up in the 80s, and I feel like I rode around on my bike in my small town, and I never did that, but I, I have a feeling that I did. I feel like that's a homecoming to, to my childhood when I, when I see scenes like that. Um, and there's something a little, bit, a little bit painful about that, that it's a proper mixture of home and of pain. Yeah. And so there are two things, two things I want to say that I think that the nostalgic frame of reference enables you to do as a storyteller. And one of them is to sort of disregard subtlety because there's sort of an expectation in an adult novel or a more sophisticated novel that you have to be subtle about the themes of your story. And if you're writing and kind of like with childlike simplicity, you can sort of discard that and sort of address the themes directly. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what happens with, when, when we come across Eleven. So Eleven's a really interesting character because Eleven, who is what, Millie Bobby Brown, right, is she's this uh, young girl who has escaped from a lab experiment, which we don't know very much about at this point, except that she's been given these special powers to levitate things. And she, she can't speak. And so she's taken in under the wing of these three boys who find her kind of a sort of fascinating 
uh, fascinating creature, first because she's a girl and also secondly because she doesn't speak. And I think the, the second episode, she the, the title is The Weirdo on Maple Street. So the title is actually written from the perspective of the boys mm-hmm. seeing Eleven as the weirdo on Maple Street. And so there's that simplifying again. There's a big complicated plot happening, which is probably involves the Russians or something. You know, what's this crazy lab experiment? But we simplify it down to a very small domestic scene where you come across the weirdo on Maple Street. And mm-hmm. and then what I think is a really probably serves as the emotional core of this story is this discussion where uh, the Eleven asks what a friend is. And you were, so you were, I think you've seen that, that episode, right? Sophie, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, you get the f- sort of emotional 80s music comes in when they start talking about what a friend is. And so what do they, how do they define a friend? A friend is someone who sticks by you at all the time and you can share your, your, your bicycle trading cards with them, your, your baseball cards with them. And you get to keep secrets with them and then it's a bond that lasts forever and you seal it with spit. She's like, spit? Yeah, like you spit on it like this and you become friends. And and then she's, and I think that's probably the, the best the best instance of, of good writing that I saw in that show is when that, that discussion keeps on coming up and you can see this is the theme of the show being worked in. So first we learn the meaning of friend. Then we learn the meaning of bond then we learn the meaning of family then we learn the meaning of promise and that means a huge that's like what the whole discussion is centered around and i think that that's useful when we use a nostalgic or sort of childlike way of talking about things because then we can take simple concepts concepts that we assume we understand or that we've taken for granted universal human concepts love friendship forgiveness these sort of things and then we can approach them as unfamiliar things, as if we don't know what they are. So we take the familiar and we make them strange. We make them into strange things. And mm-hmm. I think that there's a bit of whimsy about that that's appealing because you can, yeah. What do you guys think? Um, the one that I have is that it's interesting to me that Eleven is basically nonverbal and is being slowly introduced to the meanings of things. Combined with the fact that she's telekinetic, right? That she can move things and objects in the world around her with her mind. Because she have that kind of power. Like, to have a telekinetic power, she has an inherent connection with the physical world, right? The material things around her. She can move those things and has a connection to those things that's deeper than those people around her because she can move it. It's her mental... Like, her mind, she is the one doing these things and connecting. Like, she's connected to these objects. Um, But doesn't know the name of the things. Uh, The things that she has some sort of connection to on a natural level or on a material level. Um, So I wonder if... Like, that raises some questions, I think, about language and is one word as good as another word like we're, we're told that uh god says things and that's what creates the world um that god says let there be light and that's the image we're given and then we have in in chronicles of narnia the image of aslan singing the world 
into existence, that it's words that create the world. But here I feel like we have a weird inversion, which is that Eleven um, experiences the world around her and has a deep connection to material objects and to the world, or the physical world, but can't name those things. Um, so she's able to do things, create, I mean, in a weird sort of way, by moving things, but she can't, she can't name those things. She doesn't, she doesn't create by naming. Um, I'm just curious what that says about what the show is saying about language, um, because it doesn't depict language in that way, that language is a secondary thing, that we give names to things that we already understand or know. Or is there a sense in which she's, she's creating by learning the names for things? I think that's really interesting because there's also a theme in the show of trust and she, Eleven, like, learns to talk along with coming to trust the boys, especially Mike, who's teaching her these words for things. And at the beginning, um, they're, like, in the, they're in the basement and they've got this toy Millennium Falcon and Mike is trying to prove to the other boys that she's telekinetic and she, and, he, and he's like, you know, make this fly and she won't do it because she's grown up her whole life being forced to use her powers for this, for these lab mm-hmm. experiments that she's part of. And she, she doesn't like being forced to use her powers. And then all the boys leave and it shows her making the Millennium Falcon fly just sitting there in the basement by herself. And then throughout the show, uh, as her friends get in more and more danger, she starts to use her powers more to help them. And I think there's this connection as she's learning to talk, she's learning to trust because Mike tells her what a promise is. And he promises several times that he's going to come back for her and that she's going to be okay. And that their friend will is going to be okay. And, she is able to start using her powers instead of for government experiments she started starting to be able to use them for her friends to help them and Mm -hmm. she becomes their savior in several instances and it's because she's learning to trust them and she learns to talk along with that and i think there's some connection in the show between 11 using her powers and learning to talk and trust and that like trust is the bond between these between talking to your friends and between friendship and learning to interact with the world around you in a healthy way so to combine kind of the two thoughts that both jenny and sophie had so jenny was saying that she actually she learns the meaning of promise and the meaning of trust and friendship through the action of using her powers to help her friends. And I think that that, I think that that kind of is interesting in relation to when we're exploring or discussing how she comes to understand the meanings of words. And so to kind of go back to language here and, and then also to look at the world through the eyes of a child, and that is to take things at face value. And Eleven becomes our eyes, the eyes which enable us to look at the familiar and see it in an unfamiliar way. And so I've thought a lot about how people acquire an understanding of what a word is. So you look at people, especially people who have been developmentally disabled, as Eleven was, like a real life example of that is Helen Keller. 
Helen Keller and one of the most famous scenes in her autobiography, The Story of My Life, is when Anne Sullivan t- teaches her the meaning of water. Mm-hmm. And it's she describes her experience of understanding the meaning of water. And it's beautiful prose, you know, when she's taken out into the well uh, and Anne Sullivan impresses the letters of water on her hand. And it was this explosive, it's this moment of light, of illumination for her when she finally understands the association between the word and the meaning. And it's done through in a very physical way, through action. And then, so, so the, I think that when we don't have to struggle with these concepts, like water, love, friendship, and these sort of things, we take it for granted and then we start, a, we start acting like we actually understand it when, when we don't. Right. And I think that that, childhood or looking through the world through the eyes of a child it has a way of kind of calling out our hypocrisy because a child will keep on asking you questions you know what does this mean why is this happening why 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 and you get to the point where you don't really know how to answer it and that's because you don't know the answer these are these are mysteries to us and it's only the child who is still able to perceive the mystery so Eleven does that because Eleven is very morally consistent. You know, mm-hmm. when she figures out what a promise is or the idea that like the theme that friends don't lie, she holds them to it. And mm-hmm. then you realize there are times when Mike Wheeler and the rest of the kids don't really stick to that. And sometimes they lie to her and then she calls them out on it. Hey, friends don't lie. And there's mm-hmm. that that one track thing where... Mm-hmm. I understood what the meaning of this is, so why aren't you why aren't you following up on it? And so but but that happens when we grow up and life becomes complicated, I think, is that we realize that the, the problem with a promise is that it's difficult to keep and you know and and, and there there are things like education and and, and uh, career and, and business and and marriage and all of these things that they get in the way of it and people change people grow up so why do you need to keep a promise and that's part of i think the trouble of adulthood which you see in children's literature like classic children's literature like narnia and maybe the little prince by antoine de saint exupery they they criticize they criticize this sort of socialization where we we lose the original meaning of these words because we don't look at it at face value in a, in, a sim, in, in the simplest way possible. And if it's not true on the simplest level, then then is it true at all? And maybe that's and so that makes me think also of Jesus, Jesus's attitude towards children and mm-hmm. the kind of our mandate as Christians to to be Christ like is inseparable from the idea that we need to become like children. Like why why do Christians see that, see the eyes or looking at the world through the eyes of children? Why is that so important? Because that's not really necessarily um, true of every religion, right? This attitude towards children, I think, is is sort of unique in that in mm-hmm. a Christian sense. Well I that's really interesting I mean, thinking about children in relation to language, in relation to trust. Um, I'm a Latin teacher, obviously, 
and I tell my students stories in Latin. And my youngest students are 12, and my oldest students are like 15 or so. And uh, what I found is that, you know, let's say I'm telling them a story and I need to use the word for, for grass, and the word for grass is erba, and I use it and they haven't heard the word for grass before. And so at first all of them are kind of like, huh, like what, what are you talking about? And then I draw a picture of it on the board, but I'm not a very good artist, so they don't get what it is still. And then I'm trying to think of a way to describe it, but they do know the word for sheep. And so I tell them that sheep eat erbum and they go, oh, okay. Like they get it. It's grass. Um, and I found that the younger the student is, the faster that process happens. And with the least resistance, um, there's not a mental block the younger they are to gaining new, new concepts or new words. Um, because... They just, everything is a new word. Um, they're absorbing all of these new words, but it's also giving them a way to talk about the world. So let's talk about some of the other characters in, in, in the show. We've talked a lot about particularly Eleven's perspective. Um, there are a lot of interesting character arcs in this story. For example, Nancy's boyfriend, Steve, which, which I think is probably... He's probably one of the most interesting characters in the show. So we we're the whole story is showed is told mo mostly from the perspective of these kids and these kids are discovering this parallel universe. And there's kind of like this attitude of the kids do the discovering and it's almost like it's the kids world. It sort of belongs to them. They're the ones that make the names. So they're kind of, they get to be Adam and Eve. They're the ones that, that name the world. And so the, and by naming it, it belongs to them. So the, and then, and then the adults are kind of cut off from that. But Steve is the exception. Steve is Nancy's boyfriend. So it's Mike's older sister has a boyfriend named Steve. And he kind of, gets drawn into this world but but he's also kind of a bully and a jerk at the beginning of the story so what do we think of steve there's a lot of controversy about him as a character i think he's one of my favorite characters because he really changes a lot throughout the first season and he actually becomes a good guy which you don't you don't see that super often in movies and shows. Someone becoming good, but in like not in not a cringe way. It's not forced, and he's not he doesn't become like a goody two shoes, like super self righteous or anything. And he changes. I think his change starts when he's dating Nancy, but it really takes a turn when he sees the monster for the first time. In it's one of the last episodes of the season. He comes to Will's house, which is where Nancy is at the time, and he's just trying to get Nancy back because she's not sure that she likes him anymore, and she's spending a lot of time with Jonathan, this other guy, and he's kind of jealous. And the whole time, he's just trying to get Nancy. Um, and then finally, he goes to the house while they're baiting the monster that's been chasing and kidnapping people. And he sees, Steve sees the monster, he stays too long, and the monster comes while he's there. And it changes, it seems to change his perspective on life. And instead of just trying to get Nancy, he becomes like a more complicated person. And he has other things that he's trying to do. He starts helping the kids 
figure out what's going on with this other dimension and with the monster. And he just becomes a deeper and better person. And then his character develops a lot in the second season, I think. But you see that, you see his change in the first season. Right. So what do you think facilitates that change? Is it merely just the terror of the Demigorgon? Or is or is it something else? I think it's the terror, and I, I think the terror makes him realize that there's more to the world than he can see and it maybe makes him realize there's more to nancy than he can see that she's not just some cute girl he wants to date but that she's a person and she has a choice and she doesn't have to like him back and um i i think i also uh i'm interested what you guys think of we haven't talked a lot about the horror element and about the upside down the other dimension in this world um, I think that's a really important element of the show that there's this there's this other world that's sort of integrated with our with the visible world with what we experience and him seeing that that seeing the monster makes him realize there's something else going on that he can't see and he believes it right away he sort of has a childlike faith and maybe that's why he gets along with the kids. He just is sort of like, oh, I yeah, saw the monster, think, it's real. And I, Yeah, and I think that's also one of the things about Steve that makes him redeeming is that he is a bully and he, he, he punches, he pushes Jonathan around, he pushes the other kids around. Um, but they're all his age, mm-hmm. right? But you don't ever see him bullying kids. Mm. I mean, I guess, I don't know if there was a couple times when he was a little bit rough, but for the most part, he's, he, 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 he treats them differently. And I think that that is is what makes him likable, I think. And that goes back to this sort of attitude of like what makes a good person, what makes a likable person. Part of it is is the ability to like children, hmm. I think, is is a is a big part of that in the recipe of making a, a, a likable character, especially when you're designing a character who who has a lot of flaws. There is an idea in. In um, Disney, Disney has a rule, the, the writers at Disney, and one of the things that they say when they are designing a protagonist is that they say that the protagonist has to save a cat. That's their formula. Mm-hmm. And the idea is your character, your protagonist can be as dislikable and as flawed as you like. And... But if you want to root for them, they have to do something good. And that good thing is something like saving a cat. And a cat is something vulnerable and, and not that does. And it's sort of like an act of disinterested love. And so no matter how terrible your character is, if your character saves a cat at some point in the story, then the audience will root for them. That's really interesting. And the idea of saving a cat is interesting, too, because it's not something that's, like, cosmically important. You know, they're not saving the world. It's just, and it's not even, like, another person. It's just an animal. And it just shows that they have this sort of tenderness. Yeah, or maybe maybe demonstrating that the person has a an unlocked potential for sainthood mm-hmm. <laughs> that hasn't been tapped into or they haven't realized maybe even that they have. But it's like making a promise to your audience that this person, this person is going on a journey. They're not there yet. Hmm. But believe us, 
they have the capability to be the kind of person that you really love and that going on that journey is really good. Although, so I think one of the most interesting dynamic characters of all time is Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Um, but I don't know if they, I don't know if he follows that rule. I don't really know if there is anything in the beginning that makes you, I don't think he saves a cat. <laughs> um, and that story works really well. So maybe, maybe it's not important in every single story, but I think in general that is true, that you need to see that there's capability for change. I mean, you can have a very interesting character who has no redeeming characteristics whatsoever. Right. But what's interesting for the case of Disney is because Disney is in the science of appeal. They, they, want, to, they want the audience to huh. have a good time. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a psychological truth in that. Like, if you want to like somebody... You know, that doesn't mean he's a, that's not the recipe for making an interesting character. Mm. Right. It's, it's the recipe for making a likable huh. character. Um, but anyway, so, so yes, I think that Steve, I think that the moment that I decided I liked Steve was kind of this interesting dynamic where he ends up having the kids, Mike, Lucas, and Dustin as his best friends. And they're the people that he ends up hanging out with most of the time. And I think that that what's interesting about him is because he's kind of considered to be the cool kid and the popular kid with the cool hair. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't seem to be the sort of person you would think would hang out with the uncool kids. And yet that's what he ends up doing. And there's something sort of disinterested about that where it's just sort of, yeah, like that's that's an appealing thing about him. But I think that Steve's movement, it's not just Nancy necessarily. I think Nancy is a big part of it. But it's also in him entering or being invited into the child world, hmm. you know. And when I say the child world, I don't mean an innocent world by any stretch, but a dynamic world, a world where there is a battle between good and evil going on. um, And there are monsters and there are dragons that need to be defeated. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of, right. And that, that makes me think of course, of that, that famous quote by GK Chesterton, fairy tales do not teach us that dragons are real. Children already know that dragons are real. Mm -hmm. Fairy tales teach us that dragons can be killed. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that attitude here in Stranger Things because it's the kids who discover the Upside Down and they name it the Upside Down. They, they discover the Demogorgon. They name the Demogorgon. And it's the adults who come in afterwards, right? And they're the ones who, who don't really understand what's going on. And they kind of impose their interpretation of the events and their interpretation isn't actually sufficient mm-hmm. because they're not seeing it as a monster and they're not seeing it as a battle between good and evil. And the, and the adults that do are kind of seen as kooky. Like they're the ones who are, who, who are siding with the kids' interpretation of things. So Joyce Byers, who is Will's mom, she finds a way to communicate with Will by stringing the house up with Christmas lights. And then the lights light up when... She's getting messages from Will or something. And Joyce is kind of written off as sort of a crazy woman, you know. And the same thing with is the case with Steve. Steve actually sort of loses respect from his peers because he starts getting engaged more in the, the child world where there are monsters and dragons to be defeated. 
And I think that maybe that's kind of, maybe we could tease out and say that's sort of a moral center of the story, is being able to be initiated into this world where there are good guys and bad guys and, and supernatural things and, and monsters. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say Joyce is an interesting character because she almost, I can't remember now if it's before the kids or alongside the kids, even though they're not talking necessarily, she discovers the Upside Down and she is convinced. Everyone else is telling her that Will, her son, is dead and she's convinced that he's not because she can feel him. She can feel him in the house and she starts going about sets about trying to figure out what's going on with this other dimension she's convinced that there's something strange going on yeah um she's kind of a childlike character too and yeah really rain like you said everyone thinks she's crazy it's so uh so before just before we recorded this episode because i i have gone years believing that the title of stranger things is a portion of a quote from Shakespeare because I thought the quote was Hamlet says to Horatio there are stranger things in heaven and on earth Horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy and then I looked up the quote and it's there are more things oh heaven and earth that are dreamt (laughs) of in your philosophy Horatio so so my brilliant connection uh doesn't actually work but also it still kind of it feels like it does and it feels kind of strange and maybe they did just take the phrase more things and think hmm we can't do that we have to say stranger things because (laughs) i don't know the probably that didn't happen but the point is that like (laughs) the reason hamlet says that to horatio is that they've all seen the ghost of hamlet's father who's clearly here and he's telling hamlet things about the real world and horatio's like that's there's no way because horatio just like has a very strict view of the world and he says there aren't he doesn't believe in in ghosts um and hamlet is the sort of person who meets the ghost of his father and is like yep checks out like that (laughs) that's my father and Hmm. and i mean obviously so much of the play is him being like was it really like was that a demon was that my father how am i supposed to think about it but he doesn't really doubt that it's the supernatural that he's encountering the supernatural and um for horatio that kind of is the question like is this real are the the things the more things in heaven and on earth real um and that's just not true for hamlet and i think there is some sense in which hamlet taps into a little bit of a a childlike lots of his motivations and the way that he acts and the way that he views the world is a little bit like like a child who i mean it's kind of in a depressing way but who can't fully understand the world yet and is a little bit betrayed by the things he sees and he doesn't fully understand the motivations of people who do things that he thinks are wrong um but he does believe in he does believe in ghosts Hmm. um when his friend Horatio does. Right, and he has to and he has to learn what a and he has to learn what a friend is. You know? Yeah. And he has to learn what a friend is. So to 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 go back to sort of like the Shakespearean stance when it comes to supernatural things. Um well, Shakespeare but also but also the kind of attitude towards supernaturalism in general. There are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in your philosophy is an interesting quote because it's a starting point. It's a starting point. I mean, it doesn't really say what is out there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say 
what sort of things are out there, but that there are more of them. And a lot of a lot of uh, movies in this particular theme, let's say the exploration of the supernatural, it doesn't really go much farther than simply the statement that there are more things. Hmm. I mean, there it's right there in the title of the title of the show, Stranger. It's like, what is it? It I don't know, but it's Stranger, <laughs> right? So also leaving us with the implication that the things we already know are are already strange, but there are also some stranger things. It's just it's a matter right. of degree, not of whether or not the thing is strange. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, that's like the utility of the child of looking at the world through the child's perspective, because um, from the child's perspective, everything is strange. The fact friend, friendship is strange and the demigorgon is strange and you see those things on the same plane and then the world becomes much more interesting hmm. and dynamic in that way. But And language is strange. Exactly, exactly. Concepts are strange. But but here's here's the thing I I, I really the question I have here is that what I see a lot particularly, and maybe this is a criticism, what I see a lot particularly in the genre of horror or sci-fi, because this show is kind of sci-fi horror and supernatural paranormal kind of uh, blended together in a sort of whimsical show for kids is kind of the way I see it. Um, A lot of these shows in this particular genre never really go much farther than the statement that there are supernatural things out there. And in addition to that, they don't really go much farther than saying their judgment of it is that these things are bad, you know? Hmm. So there are things out there and they're dangerous. You know what I mean? And I think that that's interesting that that's always, why is that always our assumption? Because Horror is interesting to us because we're fascinated with the fact that there are things out there. But horror, the horror genre always presumes that those things are going to be horrible and terrifying and that they're evil and they want to eat us up. I kind of like both those things because I think they both witness to mystery, to the mystery of the world that we can't see. And I think maybe it's a shortcoming of humans artistic ability or at least in our era of movies our artistic ability that we can depict that there are other things that we can't see and can't always experience but we don't we're incapable at least with the state of art that our that our current age is in we can't depict the glory the otherworldly glory and beauty that is of the things of God and the things of heaven. It's just, we don't know what it's like and it's so good that we can't depict it. So the only way we can really depict otherworldliness is, is, is darkness and, and bad things. But I think that's still a testament to the fact that we recognize that there is more that we don't know about and that we can't describe it all. I think I have a a slightly different take on that in the sense that 
it seems to me kind of like it, it makes a lot of sense that in the horror genre the otherworldly creatures or the spiritual creatures are evil because the spiritual creatures that we really encounter or that people really encounter tend to be demonic like when you when you mess with uh when you mess with the occult what you run into isn't angels what you run into is demons hmm. um they're easier to access who, yeah and like taking um particular kinds of drugs and getting access to um demonic forces and opening yourself up to forces like that that kind of thing happens all the time and in all hmm. sorts of ways and all over the place but opening yourself up to the world of god is a different and more material experience it's less um psychedelic i don't know like it's it's less it's not horrifying um and it's not so much the same the same sense of encountering creatures um it's more it's more grounding it's less it feels less like encountering a different spiritual world and maybe more like coming home um so i don't know i, I think it seems very natural to me that we who experience the spiritual world largely by like when we hear of people experiencing the spiritual world it's largely demonic um it makes a lot of sense i yeah. also no I, I i absolutely agree with you and sorry oh, did you want to say something? i was just i was going to add i also think it's very incarnational because i think when you set up a world such that the other worldliness is the evil and the bad, then that automatically makes the human world the good. And mm -hmm. that makes the humans the heroes. And in reality, salvation comes to us through the human world. Like, God has to become human to save us. And Christ, the human, saves our humanity and saves our human world and our visible, tangible world. And the church is the visible, tangible community of the saved. So I think there's something also really beautiful about setting up the world such that the humans are the good guys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, okay. That, hmm. I'm going to have to think about that. That's a lot to, <laughs> that you want. Maybe it's a little humanist. That. We only but... raise questions. We never answer That's them. That's right. Yeah. Well, okay, so Sophie was kind of... Um, I think I agree with Sophie if, if what you mean is this, that maybe part of the reason why the spiritual world is often evil is because that is the kind of experience that we tend to invite. Mm -hmm. um, and also that ties back to Chesterton because Chesterton was said the same thing, like black magic as opposed to white magic. Black magic is practical. Black magic cares about mm. results. And that's the difference is that you know, demons say, I'm actually going to give you something, right? And, you know, I'll ask for your soul in return, but... It's transactional. I'm going to give you real powers. Yeah. And that's that's different from from the sort of deals that, let's say, angels, angels might make with you. Angels don't come up and, and strike deals with you like that. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's part of, part and parcel with the horror genre, is that the horror genre or demons in particular deliver results, hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but I think that there's also the question of, you know, okay, there are demons out there, but are there angels too? And what are they like? Well, in the Bible, every single time you see an angel, they say, do not be afraid. Mm -hmm. So 
We know that they're probably pretty terrifying, but what kind of terrifying are they? What is it like to actually encounter an angel? And I think that that is, I think for us is much harder for us to actually conceptualize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like what is, and that's, that was something that Lewis said when the children came and met Aslan, can some, the children didn't believe that something can be good and terrifying at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so Lewis really wrestled with the idea of a terrifying good, which I think that's something that for me, I think falls short that I see missing when the, with the exploration of, of the horror genre. So there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamed of in your philosophy. That's what we discover from stranger things, mm-hmm. but how much more? And what kind of things, you know, is it is it always going to be evil and can it be good? And if it's good, how would we be able to distinguish it from the evil? Because they're both terrifying, Mm -hmm. you know, like that was and that's part of one of the criticisms of like, say, (laughs) Milton and Paradise Lost. You know, Satan, we have a very clear picture of Satan because we know what Satan is like. We all have a little bit of a devil in us. So he's a very relatable person. But what's heaven like? I like to think that when when angels say "Do not be afraid," um, the the translation is slightly off, and what that really means is they're just the first thing, the first words out of their mouth is "Stop screaming," <laughs> because they show up and immediately have to control the screaming. So they show up, boom, immediately. Okay, stop screaming. <laughs> Calm down. So we can talk. <laughs> yeah, so so I can talk to you. <laughs> be quiet. It's like me with my students. <laughs> I do think the one form of art that I can think of that portrays the good and in sort of a beautiful and overwhelmingly terrifying way are the medieval and renaissance cathedrals of Europe. Um, And like Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel, just like overwhelming beauty and brightness. And and it, it involves a lot of human figures You've got God and Adam and figures of the Bible portrayed as humans in human bodies. And there's a sort of fascination. See, I don't think we can create beautiful glory like that anymore. We're not good at that. And so we kind yeah. of resort to, to dealing with evil and gross things because that's how we know how to terrify each other. But they did at one point, and the Renaissance art is just... Is, is gorgeous, but they also were obsessed with the human body. And I think there's something mm-hmm. about uh, the Renaissance recognizing that the human form and the form that Christ took is the most beautiful thing we can think of. And so we, we paint God and we paint the saints and the figures from the Bible as human and use that to decorate these beautiful buildings that are also very tall and have a lot of fancy woodwork and and stone carving they're very intimidating right but you also have the gargoyles too mm. which is like that's the kind of the aesthetic i think that stranger things taps uh, into yeah. is the idea the gargoyles they they're the ones on the outside of the building mm. and they're the ones that are sort of like terrifying they, they they push away the evil spirits and then you enter inside and then there's there's goodness to be discovered in, in yeah. there but there's, it's interesting that you mentioned medieval cathedrals because I think that that, 
that the what's interesting about cathedrals and iconography in general is that everything is symbolic, which I think is really very interesting thing about like say Eastern Orthodox iconography because like every single color and every single gesture means something, mm-hmm. and it's but it's it's the the aesthetic or the actual qualia of the art itself is very one dimensional. You know, it's a stained glass window. Mm-hmm. The light's supposed to shine through it. Um, so the shapes, or it's it's very very simplified. But because every single tiny little gesture is a symbol with some deeper meaning, it actually enables for complexity to emerge out of that. And I think that's the power of a symbol: is that it's sim- it's, it's it's complex in its sim- in its simplicity. And so that I think is kind of what I think Stranger Things does when it when it kind of simplifies it and interprets the supernatural paranormal realm through the perspective of a child. When all these things happen, when what do they how do they describe the X upside down? They take a Dungeons and Dragons board and they turn it upside down and say, okay, that's what the world is. And then they 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 think then they make these comparisons like what is this creature Mm. oh he's like it's like gandalf it's like darth vader it's like you know all of these mythological worlds that they experience they play with they use that as their interpretive framework in order to understand what's happening and that's exactly i mean joyce byers does the same thing because she simplifies what's happening through christmas lights so the Christmas lights becomes the symbol of what's happening on the other mm. side. And then in, and then in the second season that she makes, she creates the world through crayon drawings. Again, it's like simplified. Mm. And that becomes the symbol of what's happening. And everything is analogous. Everything is metaphorical. Mm. Um, so I think, I think that's the same thing. That, that a similar thing is happening, is interpreting the world through, it, through the symbolic world. Um, but for me, I think that the thing that's missing... I think that there's maybe more to be said about a real clear portrait of goodness or, you know, the idea of goodness existing in the symbolic world in, in, in order to contrast the evil. So maybe I think that was kind of what I was getting mm-hmm. at. Yeah. And I think there, I think that does, that is missing. I, I, I think horror does as good of a job as we're going to get of depicting otherworldliness, but I think you're right that I think we we don't really know how to show goodness in an otherworldly way. We only know how to depict good human characters that are fighting this massive evil. Yeah. Sophie, you have any closing thoughts? There are more things, not stranger things, <laughs> that are dreamt up in your philosophy, Horatio. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, the next episode that we're going to be going into, I wanted to do Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. And part of that is because what's interesting to me about Out of the Silent Planet is it's one of the few, it was one of the early sci-fi stories, and it's one of the few sci-fi stories where the aliens are portrayed as the, as the, as the good guys. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that will be an interesting discussion. I want to say I've been so. a long-time listener, first-time caller. 
I appreciate you guys having me on the show. <laughs> Thanks so much, so much for coming and talking with us. Yes. Yeah, well, thank you for listening, everyone. And thanks for coming on the podcast, Jenny. We hope you come back. I will be back. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorsstoa at gmail.com. We love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klumperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klumperens. In our next episode, Sophie and Raymond will discuss C.S. Lewis's 1938 science fiction space epic, Out of the Silent Planet. Until then, friends, remember the immortal words of Shakespeare, there are stranger things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. I know you can see something inside the one part of me that I cannot hide, and maybe